Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name is Drew. I'm also a pastor here at Redeemer, and uh, it's my pleasure to be with you this morning. We are continuing a series going through the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians. We've been just going verse by verse, basically. Uh, we're in chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read through verse 18. So if you have a worship folder, it's there printed for you. It'll also be on the screen behind me. If you're at home joining us from there, it should be on your screen as well. And so let's uh, read together uh, these verses from Paul to the Ephesians. Verse 11, therefore, remember at that one time, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both of us one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came to, and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. If you would say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we've given this sermon series in Ephesians the title, Riches of Grace. You see that there on the screen. And one implication of grace is peace. Grace makes itself known in peace. Paul's customary greeting in the churches and what you see here in Ephesians chapter 1 is grace and peace to you. This is how he opens most of his letters because those two go together. Grace makes peace possible. And that is the emphasis of this particular text. The gospel of grace that Paul's been laboring to deliver to these people and to us, the way that it creates a community of peace where walls that separate and divide are being broken down and people are being reconciled not only to God but to one another. And so here's my question as we come to this text this morning. As you think about your life, I've said it a different way in the past, but this morning I'd have you think about it this way. Are you, are you a wall builder or are you a wall breaker? Is the momentum of your life towards kind of building walls and walling yourself off from all the other annoying people in your life or all the people that are not like you or all the people that don't meet your standards or whatever? Or are you, it's kind of the, the, the implication of your life that you're a person who is just busting through walls everywhere you go for the sake of being related rightly to other people? Are you a wall builder or are you a wall breaker? Because you see, there's a problem that we have as we talk about this issue of peace. And we need to see that from this text. It shows us the problem of peace and then it introduces us to the person of peace so that we might live with the power for peace. And that's what we see here, the problem and the person and the power for peace. So let's walk through the text together. Can we do that? First, the problem of peace. Why is there so little peace in the world? I mean, I think we can all agree this is the case. Just look at the, the last two weeks with Russia invading Ukraine. But we don't have to go even to the world stage. Every single one of us in the room this morning if I were a betting man, I would say, is going through some kind of relational conflict right now. I feel fairly certain of that. And even in the church, we can't say that this isn't something that the church itself struggles or that most of our experiences have been some sort of conflict in the church. The ch church that I grew up in, the legend was anyway, I, don't, I can't confirm it was true because it was 1974, but the legend was that the church that I grew up in 
was started with a fist fight in the, in the uh, parking lot of the church that those people left to start the new church. It became legend. And we won, right? I mean, our, our, our church won. And that was how it went. And that was the, and that was the way that it went. So let's don't, let's don't assume that the church is even immune from these things. So why? Why is peace so hard to come by? Well, the Bible gives us an incredibly elegant explanation for why peace is so hard. It says that there is no peace inside. See, that's the problem, that there is no, there's no peace inside. Inside, there's anxiety and conflict. Inside each person, each one of us, there is even what Paul uses, James, excuse me, uses the word in James chapter 4, verse 1, war, that there's a war going on inside each of us. He uses that word to describe our inner life. We are at war inwardly. And that is why, according to James and according to the Bible, that we're warring with one another. So the question is, what's the reason for the inner war? And there are a number of things as you begin to go a little bit deeper in, these, in, in, in this explanation. What's the reason for the inner war? Well, it might be that there's just too much going on in your life, or there's too much going on in your head, or you know, your emotions are out of control. The scripture doesn't discount any of that, but it says that alongside whatever psychological or emotional causes, there's a spiritual problem. We lack peace inwardly because we're not at peace with God. So if you're not a Christian... That's something that you should even, you know, give some consideration to. But even if you are a Christian, if you're a Christian and you're not at peace inwardly, then somewhere there's a disconnect, somewhere that you've forgotten. Notice the call to remember here two times. In verse 11 and then again in verse 12, he says, remember, remember, because one of the biggest spiritual problems in our lives is that we so often forget. We forget the spiritual state that we were in before we believed, and we also forget the change that Jesus makes possible. And he wants us to remember so that we can go to work on whatever turmoil we feel on the inside to be at peace with God so that we can be bringers of peace in the world. So let's look at each of those really quickly. Not only the state of our lives before we believe, but also the change that Jesus makes possible. Because look at how he describes it, beginning in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Those are heavy words. Our sin has alienated us from God. This is, what, this is what Christianity believes. We are separated from him. In Genesis, the man and the woman were exiled from the garden, if you remember the story there, at the very beginning of the scriptures. Because of their sin, they were kicked out of the garden, and angels were posted at the entrance with flaming swords to keep them out, to keep them from trying to come back in and, and get back into to God. In the temple, where, you know, Israel's life, in the temple, there was a huge curtain and in, the, and, in, and in the tabernacle as well, and in the religious life of Israel in the Old Testament, there was this huge, this huge curtain that separated the people from the Holy of Holies, from the place where God was. And on the curtain were the angels with flaming swords that were there posted to guard the way back into the garden because it's carrying a theological message. To use C.S. Lewis's phrase, we're on the wrong side of the door. We're on the outside looking in. We all feel like an outsider in the world. And this is part of our alienation from God. Notice how the text describes us as being far off in verse 13. And then it's reiterated again in verse 17. He says, you are far off. And it's a description of our alienation. But not only just the, the, the reality of our alienation, but also the psychology of it. It's also a description of how it feels there's a certain psychology of alienation. I meet with people almost weekly, it seems, who describe their loneliness, 
how they don't feel like they're part of the group, how they can't find friends or a group to belong to. And, you know, so I can tell you with firsthand knowledge, there are no insiders. Everybody is an outsider. Everybody feels like an outsider. That's what sin does. And so sin is the culprit. And so we got to talk about that a little bit more. Well, what do we mean? Well, C.S. Lewis said that pride... Human pride is by definition competitive. Pride makes other people and other groups into rivals. That's one of the problems that we have to confront. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it so well. He said, sin makes a man constantly turn in upon himself and revolve around himself. He is the center. He said, that's not the real problem. The other problem is every other person on the planet is doing the exact same thing. All men are constantly doing the same thing, and that's the problem. If I existed alone, there would be no trouble. But if every other I is just as selfish as I am, the result is a world populated by seven billion I's all asserting themselves and demanding their rights. What do you think is going to happen? Conflict is inevitable. But there's another layer. In this this prideful competitiveness we group up we find other people who share our values and priorities and create a group identity that becomes competitive with every other group because we want to be we want to be in the group that's right right our group is right our group is inside and it feels good to be in with the group that is on the right side of things but of course in order for your group whatever your group is to be in there has to be a group or groups that are what out and Paul puts his finger right on this when he says to the Gentiles in verse 11, he says, you were called the uncircumcision. Do you see that in quotes there? Air quotes. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So what he's describing there is the Jewish Christians who in the church, as what's happening in Ephesians, as with all the, the churches that Paul planted, is that there was a Jewish movement at first, but then the Gentiles started to believe, and Paul had a ministry to them. And as the Gentile Christians were coming in, it was creating all this conflict between these two racial, cultural groups. And so he says the Jewish Christians were looking at the Gentiles who were believing and coming into the church, but they were excluding them, and they were looking down their noses on them because they didn't have the same religious pedigree. Circumcision there, it's a synonym for being a religious person. They thought that they were better than the Gentiles. They called them the uncircumcised. It was a term of derision. So what's happened, they're using their, they're, they're using their morality and their cultural identity to create an insider status, an insider group for themselves so that they can exclude other people and turn them into outsiders to say, you don't belong here. You don't meet our standards. You're not as good as we are. And the result is what Paul describes here in verse 14. You see the phrase? It's an important phrase. He says they're, they're created dividing walls of hostility. Between us and them, whoever the us and them are, Paul's saying there's no place for this in the church, but it happens. I mean, it's so easy for a church to become inhospitable to new people, to people that are on the outside, to sinners and to strugglers. It's so easy for us to become a group of religious folks who think of themselves as, as in and then begin to put up walls, right, to keep other people who don't meet our standards out. And sometimes it's a physical barrier. It's physical distance. It's like you're not, you know, we don't want you here. But, and then other times it's just quiet contempt and emotional difference or emotional distance for those who are different we are, we, than we are. Sometimes it's moral standards. Sometimes it's theology that walls us off from one another. Sometimes it's race. 
like it was here in Ephesus, Jew and Gentile alienated from one another, not willing to even occupy the same physical space or eat a meal together. I mean, look around the room. It's still a problem. Martin Luther King called Sunday morning church the most segregated hour in America. Not much has changed in 60 years. That should sit in our hearts. It should grieve us. Sometimes it's ideological and political. I don't know if you saw it, NPR wrote, uh, ran an article this last week, last week about what, what's being called the great sort, about how the country is becoming physically and geographically polarized as people move to places where their political views are dominant. And so the result is red zips are getting redder and blue zips are getting bluer all over the country. Dividing walls of hostility. And it's one thing for it to be happening in our society, but it has no place in the church. And yet this is the problem of peace. This is the problem. And so Paul says, remember what sin does. Remember what your pride, if left unchecked, will cause you to do. It'll cause you to live in such a way towards others that you put up dividing walls, you create hierarchies where you can know you're better than they are and you can make sure they know that, you're be- that you know you're better than they are. And it creates hostility. But he says, but don't forget, remember that, but also remember that Jesus that Jesus has come and that the gospel is good news for an entirely different way of living. Not just with God, but with one another. So look at verse 13. He says, but now. He describes in verse 12, we're separated from Christ and alienated from from Israel and strangers having no hope and without God. And then he interrupts, but now. And it's the same sort of full stop language as the but God in verse 4 of chapter 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near. What's Paul saying? He's reminding us that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that I, that I described there that was there in the temple, the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And do you know what that means? It means the way has been made by the person and work of Jesus for you to come in, for you to come near to God, for you to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the real insider status. Because for many people, for so many people, God is distant. But this says you can, you can know God personally. You can have the same personal relationship and access with God that is true of Jesus and the Father. You were far off, but he can bring you near. He can, you can come home. Like, like when you were away at college and you were so far away and you came home, right? You can, you can be near to him, but here's the catch. Here's the catch. It's not just something that is true of you. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus has the same status and access. You don't get to tell other people that they don't, and you do. The temple's been torn in two, not just for one little segment of the population, but for the whole world, for all who put their faith in Jesus, because righteousness, that's what we're talking about, righteousness, rightness, rightness with God, rightness, is not a matter of morality or political affiliation. Righteousness is not something you do and then give to God and earn your insider status. Righteousness is what God does and then gives to you as a gift. And that leads us to the second place. We see the problem of peace, but also the person of peace. And that's person with a capital P, okay? Not just a strategy for peace, but a person. Sometimes you gotta have a person. Do you know what I mean? I find myself envious of the men in my life who have a guy for everything, right? They got a car guy, and they got an AC guy to fix the AC when it breaks, and they got a lawn guy. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that needs some guys, okay? 
because I am not, I am not very handy. There are a few things, really there's nothing, uh, nothing that I know how to do on my own. When my car breaks, I have one option, I need a guy. I need somebody, I can, need somebody who knows the things that I don't know who can do it for me. And Paul says that we have a guy, we have a peace guy. Look what he says, he says, verse 14, for he, he says, you're far off, but you can be brought near. For he himself, that is Jesus, he is our peace who has made both one and broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. Peace is not a strategy, it is a person. And so remember, remember that Jesus Christ died upon a cross for sins. The payment for sin was blood, and Jesus shed his blood to reconcile us to God. That is the core of the Christian gospel. That is the good news, that Jesus took upon himself your sentence. He became the ultimate outsider, enduring the God-forsakenness that my sins and your sins deserve in your place. And in that exchange, his life for yours, you can have peace with God. You're no longer a child of wrath, as Paul describes back in chapter 2, verse 3. But instead, you can be the one that he describes as being adopted into God's family, part of the beloved. But the cross was just the crescendo of a life full of small acts of sacrificial love. Jesus was a master of bringing peace. You see it over and over again as you read the Gospels. At the center of his peacemaking every time was a cross-shaped love. Ultimately, the cross, but the cross played out in his life in a number of different ways, in a number of different times. All at the center of it was cross-shaped love. So Paul says there's a person of peace. And he is the one that can bring peace, both within and without. And by making peace between you and God, he can make you at peace internally. He can solve that problem. And then, by making you at peace internally, he can bring peace to your marriage. He can bring peace to your life. He can bring peace to your relationships. But is he your peace guy? Is he your guy? Do you know what I mean? I mean, do you know him? Not, can you just tell me the theology about... You know, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? When you feel chaotic inside, are you practiced in how to personally connect with him and abide in his love person to person so that he can bring calm to your storm? When you're going through relational conflict, do you know? Do you know his number? Right? Do you have him in your contacts? That's cheesy, but, but I mean... I'm trying to make a point, though. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Do you know how to call him in personally to walk with you in it? I'm not asking if you can pass a theology test. Do you know him? Is he your person? Is he your guy? Because knowing him radically changes the way you relate to others, especially others who know him, too. Now, this is long, and I apologize. I wish I had gotten this to to Joe or whoever soon enough to get it into your worship folder, but it's too important not to quote him full. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, was a part of the resistance to Adolf Hitler in World War II in Germany, a German theologian, and, and he wrote a lot about the Christian life and the church. This is from his book, Life Together. Listen to what he says, and then I'll try to unpack it for you a little bit. But he says, since, coming, since the coming of Christ, his followers have no more immediate realities of their own, not in their family relationships, nor in the ties with their nation, nor in the relationships formed in the process of living. Between father and son, listen to this, between husband and wife, between the individual and the nation, stands Christ the mediator. Whether they're able to recognize him or not, we cannot establish direct contact outside of ourselves except through him, through his word, through our following of him. To think otherwise is to deceive, or to deceive ourselves. There is no way from one person to another. 
This is radical. He says, however loving and sympathetic we try to be, however sound our psychology, however frank and open our behavior, we cannot penetrate the incognito of the other man, for there are no direct relationships, not even between soul and soul. Christ stands between us. And we can only get into touch with, the, with our neighbor through him. He goes on, which is why intercession is the most promising way to reach our neighbors. And corporate prayer offered in the name of Christ, the purest form of fellowship. Now, what's he saying? He says, we have no more immediate realities. They are now mediate. They are mediated by the person of Jesus himself. He, said, he describes Jesus as standing in between us. And so if I want to get to you, I've got to go through him first. Which changes the way I relate to you. Before I go to you, I have to go first go to Jesus. I have to remind myself of the way that he has covered my sin with his love and then remind myself of the way that he has covered your sin with his love. And do you see how that begins to change the interaction? I go to him first. It's a whole new way of relating to one another. I find it really even hard to explain. It's so profound because in the church, we never relate directly to one another. We always relate to one another through him. And that's what makes peace possible. It's a fascinating, just a fascinating thought. How would your relationships change if every interaction in your relationship, you, you imagined it as having to go from you to the other person through the Savior who loved you and died for you? But it says what happens, the way it changes the way we do things then is that begins verse 14. He is our peace. He's made us one. And then the result is there's this breaking down of the dividing walls of hostility by the abolishing of the commandments. In other words, the hostility, the conflict in the world between persons, it's all tied to law. Do you see that connection there? How is the divine wall of hostility broken down? By abolishing the law of commandments. It's tied to law. So what he's given us an insight into here is that all of our relational strife is the fruit of the spiritual disease of works righteousness. It all goes back to the reality of I think I have to earn God's love by being better than you. And what I was describing earlier, right? But Jesus has done away with all of that. God loves and accepts us not on our own merits, but for Jesus' sake. It's grace, not works. And when you make that shift, when that happens in your heart, when you really, really make that shift from works righteousness to grace, what it does is it kills the hostility. You see it in the phrase in verse 16? That he reconciled us both to God, killing the hostility. I mean, grace is the only thing that can take away the rivalry that creates in us versus them dynamic. Pride, pride creates winners and losers insiders and outsiders walls and people are certain people are on the outside of the wall and some people are on the inside of the wall and hostility usually stems from the contempt that comes from a superiority complex or the jealousy that comes from an inferiority complex but grace does away with all that it destroys all hierarchies it breaks down the walls that we've put up to protect ourselves from getting hurt and it helps us realize that all we've done in putting up those walls is locked ourselves in with our own selfishness and behind closed doors, we begin to nurse resentments and jealousies and fears that settle into hostility towards whoever it is we see as our rival. But what we're told here is that God's love can set us free. His love for us in Jesus can set us free. It can kill the hostility. True story. Confirmed by American intelligence officers. I've used this in the past, but it fits so well here. I thought we should remind ourselves of it again. In the 1980s, King Hussein of Jordan 
was informed by his secret police that a group of 75 Jordanian officers were at that very moment meeting in a nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of his kingdom. And the security officers were requesting permission to raid the barracks and arrest the conspirators, but instead the king asked for a helicopter and he flew to where the meeting was being held and he, as he left the helicopter, he told his pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away immediately without me. And unarmed, he walked right into the room where the meeting was going on, and he spoke to those conspiring against him and saying, gentlemen, it's come to my attention that you are meeting here to plan the overthrow of my government. If you do this, it will mean civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There's no need for that. Here I am. Kill me now and proceed. That way only one man need die. Now, can you imagine Putin doing something like that? But in that moment, what happened is after a moment of stunned silence, the rebels, as one, rushed forward to kiss the king's hand and pledge love and loyalty to him for life. His self-sacrifice killed the hostility, but we have a king, a good and gracious king who did just not offer to die, but who in fact died for his people, and his dying love is the only thing that can kill the hostility by humbling us out of our pride. Then then we can break through those walls that separate us from one another with our own acts of sacrificial love. And that's the other part of Bonhoeffer's insight. He says we relate to one another, not directly, but actually through Jesus, which means with changed hearts, with supernatural power, with the same cross-shaped love towards one another. He can teach us. He can empower us by his spirit in the way of peace. That's what this text promises. But what then? What happens then? And so thirdly, and I'm going to be very short here, third, you see not only the problem and the power, or the problem and the person, but thirdly, the power of peace, because it says in verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near, and then in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Isn't that a great image? That that's what he's doing. He's taking in the church all of these groups of people who otherwise would be hostile towards one another. He's breaking down those walls. He's bringing them together to make one new thing in the place of two. Just like in marriage. When two people, this is the way it's supposed to work, two people, they leave their former lives and become one new reality. They're no longer what they were before individually. They're a new unity. At least that's how it's supposed to work. But the church is the same. We're all very different people, but God is bringing us together into a new unity where there are no dividing lines or hierarchies. There are, there, there are no longer any Jew or Gentile. There isn't even male or female, Paul said in Galatians 3. We're all one in Christ. The differences are still there, of course, but we're no longer primarily defined by those differences, but instead we are defined by our common faith in Jesus. The differences that used to matter, they don't matter. They don't put up walls that keep us apart in some mysterious, beautiful way, it's those differences that bring us even closer together. And there are two implications of this that I would ask you just to wrestle with as we close this morning. The first is, if this is true, if what Paul is describing for us here about how the church is supposed to work, then I would say these two things. The first thing, you should expect that belonging to a church will mean that you become friends with people because of your love and loyalty to Jesus that you would never be friends with otherwise. The church brings together people who have natural hostilities, but then those hostilities are killed by the grace of Jesus. So in the church, 
we break down dividing walls and embrace one another out of our common love for Jesus. That dividing wall that's separating us from God has been torn down by the cross. It's been ripped in two with Jesus' final breath, and with it, all other walls come down too. You with me? That's the amen moment. You missed it. Okay? That, that's it right there. If that wall came down, then every other wall comes down too. That act is so powerful that it can not only rip the curtain in two, but it can tear down every wall that would seek to divide us from one another. That's, that's the promise of the gospel there. And so you should expect that being in a church means that you're going to find people as friends that you would never just in your natural life otherwise experience. But the other thing is, is that church should never be a place where there are insiders and outsiders. Because in Jesus, we're all insiders. We're all insiders. The gospel is the power to conquer your fear of being an outsider. The gospel is the power of God's love to conquer your fear of being an outsider, and that makes you an insider. But not the kind of insider who intentionally excludes others, because whatever status you have with God and and in this church, it's due to grace. When you feel like an outsider, that's to see the problem. You feel like an outsider, you'll do whatever you have to. You'll get... You'll do whatever you have to do to get on the inside. You'll step on whoever you have to. But when you conceive of yourself as being on the outside looking in, it brings the very worst parts of you out. You act in profoundly self-centered ways. But if in Jesus you could learn to think of yourself as being on the inside, then from the inside you'd be able to begin to look out. From a place of security and fullness in a way that you don't look at other people and say, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. You know, you'd say, if I belong here as big a sinner as I am, if I'm in, then anybody can be in too, right? And what happens when that starts to happen is that the church becomes hospitable to fellow sinners and strugglers. It becomes a community of grace and peace that mirrors the gospel of grace. Don't you think the world desperately needs something like that to point to a different way? I do. So I think we should pray this ancient prayer with St. Francis of Assisi where he says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, not seek to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It's in dying that we're born to eternal life. That is the heart cry of a person who is set about not to build up walls, but to tear them down. And so would you pray with me that we would become like that? So, Father... We thank you for this good news of the gospel that is ours to receive week after week. Uh, What amazing testimony of your great love for us in Jesus, and we marvel at it. May it humble our hearts. And we would confess to you that in too many cases we have allowed ourselves to be shaped and formed not by your great love for us, but by our own resentments, uh, by our own failures, by our own inferiority complexes, or by our own superiority complexes, looking down at other people. And the result is that too often your body, which is meant to be a haven of peace for the world, is just as broken and divided and walled off as any other place in the world. And what a poor testimony we offer to your power, to the reality of your gospel, when we allow 
the church to be that, when we allow our relationships with one another to be that. So forgive us and come Holy Spirit and empower us to a new way of making peace with one another so that the world might come to know of the great love with which you have loved us. I pray for that to happen in the room this morning in real time, that there would be relationships restored, that there would be friendships reconciled, that there would be, your, that the reconciling power of the gospel will be alive and among us, even as we prepare to come to this meal together this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's good. Can I say you don't want to miss that feast? Don't miss it. Put your faith in Jesus and meet us there on that day. But one of, surely one of the most uh, amazing parts of that joy will be the way that we finally, on that day, are brought together. Right? Where all of the resentments and the hurts that we invariably do to one another will be healed. And we will finally know one another for who we truly are. And we will finally love one another the way that we should. And there will be so much joy, not just in being there in our Savior's presence, but being there together as we're meant to be. That will be some, that there's glory in that that we can't imagine. But here's the thing. By the power of the gospel, we don't have to wait to enter into that joy. He can bring us together now by the power of his blood uh, to be a powerful sign in the world of the feast, of the joy, of the unity that is to come. And so go, go, not building up walls, go tearing them down in the name of Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord give you his peace and make you a bringer of peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace this morning.